Good morning, Lady Forest. Happy Mother's Day. I am officially a mom of four, so I get to do the sermon today. All right. It's so fun, especially to see um, uh, parents in here this morning that have come to share Mother's Day as a family. So a special welcome to moms and dads that are tagging along um, with their kiddos this morning. Well, in the next 30 days, Bill and I will celebrate two of our son's graduations, one from college and one from high school. And so we will hear two commencement addresses. Um, I would like to confess to you that I cannot remember who did my commencement address or actually anything that was said that day. I just was so excited to throw my hat into the air. Into the air. But traditionally, a commencement address is meant to be someone who has an accomplishment or leadership of some sort, right, pouring out their wisdom onto a person at a significant time in their life. Well, this week, I listened to J.K. Rawlings' very, very stirring commencement address at Harvard University. And whether you are a raving fan of Harry Potter, which she wrote, or you have the opinion of my mother when she saw the film, Harry Potter, notice that she didn't read the book, she saw the film, and her um, edit on this was, well, he was sort of a whiny little elf. And I said, Mom, wasn't an elf. Oh, that was her entire evaluation. Either way, I cannot recommend this commencement address to you enough. It's profound. I want to share with you a little snippet. The address was on the fringe benefits of failure and the need for imagination in this world. See, Rawlings found herself seven years after her college commencement address in a very failed marriage with one daughter and absolutely no job, no way to provide for herself. And she said, you couldn't be any more poor in Britain unless you were homeless. And th these are her words to that Harvard group of people getting ready to go out into the world. Now, I'm not gonna stand here and tell you that failure is fun. That period of my life was a dark one. And I had no idea that there was going to be what the press has since represented as a kind of fairy tale resolution. I had no idea how far the tunnel extended and for how long there would be no light. There would only be hope rather than reality that I would be coming out of this. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant the stripping away of the unessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I really was. The stripping away of the unessential. I stopped pretending that I was anything other than what I was. And I began to direct all of my energy into finishing the only work that had ever mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might have never found the determination to succeed in the one arena that I believed I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive and I had a daughter who I adored and I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. 
Rawlings went on to say in the address that, um, that the 43-year-old that she was when she gave the address, looking back at that 21-year-old woman that had graduated was a little uncomfortable for her because of all that she learned in the years since. It was a little uncomfortable. And she asked, what would you tell 21-year-old you now? If you're past 21, what would you, where you are now, what would you tell 21-year-old you? Well, today we're continuing the arc of God's story. It, it began with a promise to a man, and, and his, he and his wife had a family, and that family extended and grew and grew and grew and became, and they eventually became a nation the tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. They were given a king because they asked for one. The first one was a real doozy, real loser of a guy. Then we got King David, who was amazing. And today we're going to talk about one of David's sons, Solomon. See, Solomon, by the grace of God's hand, had unmatched wisdom. He also, extended his, he also ended his life in significant failure. His imagination and his leadership led Israel to the height of success. Led by him, he built the temple of God, which had it not been destroyed would surely be one of the seven wonders of the world today. I do believe, though, that the Solomon at the end of his life would say this to the 21-year-old Solomon. I think he would say, 21-year-old Solomon, do not be so convinced by your successes are simply the years that you have lived that you slip into placing your wisdom above God's wisdom. That you slip into living from your wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Let me pray for us. Father God, that is a slippery slope. We can slip into living this life in our relationships, in our work, in our families so quickly by our wisdom. Actually, Lord, there may be people in the room today that have never considered that, that life was actually designed by, by you to be lived from your wisdom, not from ours. And maybe that's a huge relief to some of us. And maybe that's just a reminder to some of us. But Lord, as we look at your story and the truth that is, that is shown all throughout your words given to us that we might have life, would you Draw our hearts to you and remind our perspective and our minds and our orientation of who you are, God, and who you're meant to be in our life. We pray and ask that in the mighty name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, Solomon was one of King David's sons. And in some ways, he was born into privilege and luxury but in other words, in other ways, he was born into a really messed up family. He was the illegitimate son of King David and a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. King David had a, a general who was Bathsheba's husband. King David had that general killed that he might be with Bathsheba. And so he was born into a really awkward, hard, messed up family. And as power would have it, there was a lot of fighting at the end of David's life about which son would take over the throne. Amnon, David's oldest son, forced himself upon his half-sister. And so David's other son, Absalom, went and killed him for that. 
Absalom, who was David's favorite, bad call, just a little parenting tip, don't have a favorite, grew impatient with David because he wasn't dying fast enough, so he led a a revolt to overthrow his father and was killed in the battle. While David was on his deathbed, clearly his sons were not thinking that David was dying fast enough, Um, Adonaha, his other son, claimed the throne and was killed for it. Feeling better about your family now? Friend, I want to just pause for one second and in all honesty say, some of you on a day like this reflect on your family and your heart is full of criticism or hurt or betrayal. And I want to say this to you, and this is the truth all throughout God's story. Your family's history does not have to define your future. I have seen over and over and over again God come into someone's life, Jesus break into someone's life and heal them and change them and give them the real life that God intended for them to have. Every single family is broken. That's the big secret I'm letting out this morning. Nobody gets to come from a flawless family. And so I want to say this to you. Your family's history does not have to define your life. God can define your life. Well, just before the passage we read this morning, Solomon in 1 Kings 3 is put on the throne. I mean, he's like the least expected son to be on the throne, and he's anointed, and he's put on the throne. And listen to young Solomon, Solomon, 21-year-old Solomon. Listen to what he says to God. He says, God, I'm just a kid. He says youth, but that's what he's thinking in his heart. I'm just a kid. He says, I have no experience in leadership. Your people are too many to even be numbered or counted. He's like terrified. So he says this, God, would you give me a receptive heart and the ability to discern between good and evil? A receptive heart means one that perceives the world, perceives each other, perceives the way that we should live this life from God's perspective, not from mine. And a discerning heart means that I see how God would define good and evil and right and wrong and relationship and order of priorities, not how I would. He asked for, he had the the humility to ask to see the world the way God saw it and to lead that way. The wise Solomon, the 21-year-old Solomon, was placing himself under the authority of God's wisdom and determined to live from that, not from his own. So flash forward to 1 Kings 8, where Kevin read for us today. Solomon is actually dedicating the temple. And, and, And if you will, this is his commencement speech to the people of God, to the people of Israel. He's pouring out to the people, listen, this is God's wisdom. This is what God, how God has called us to live. This is who God has called us to be. And, and I would say probably this is the wise Solomon that the Solomon at the end of his life had forgotten. In this commencement speech, he, he is, he's blessing the temple, the greatest achievement of his life by his own words. And this is what that temple looked like. It, it took 150,000 laborers, they believe, more than 13 years to build this temple. It, it was layered in gold. First Kings tells us there was 4,000 tons of gold and 40,000 tons of silver in this temple. 
There were precious stones all over it, marble and onyx and rubies and emeralds and the very finest and strongest wood. A scholar 10 years ago, so this is a 10 year out of date, said that he estimated that it would have cost 160, ready, trillion dollars to build this temple to God. I wonder how many times Solomon, in the effort to do this, had to hearken back to something his father David said to him. David, in 1 Chronicles 28, 20, David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, David said, my God is with you. How many times did Solomon have to lean back into that as he tried to be used by God to build a holy temple for the holy God? But here's the most significant thing about the temple. You ready? God loves us so much in his whole arc of the story that we've talked about so far, the part of God's story, the Old Testament, before Jesus walked among us, the entire Old Testament points towards Jesus. It says, I'm coming for you. I'm showing you the way back home. And so the most significant thing about the temple is that the way that God instructed David to build it points towards Jesus. It tells the story of who God is and who we are. Here's what I mean. The temple is absolutely glorious. God told David how to build the temple. And so literally the construction of it reminds us of the holiness and the majesty of God. You walked into this temple and all you could feel was your smallness and God's glory. The glory of God was literally built around you. And only priests, only priests could carry your prayers of thanksgiving or, or your prayers of request or your prayers of regret. Only the priest could approach the holy God. That's literally physically the way the temple was built. Friends, if there is one consistent weakness of humans, it's this, to minimize the glory of God and to maximize our capabilities and wisdom. If there's one slippery slope that we deal with as humans, it is to minimize the glory of God and to maximize our capabilities and wisdom. And so I just wanna stop for a minute and I just wanna remake God the holy God that he is because the temple did that. We don't have a temple that we can walk into. And so I wanna take you into the story of God and remind us of the holiness and the majesty of this God. When, do you remember the story of Moses? We've done that in the arc of the story so far. And Moses literally went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God to receive the covenant, which is now being brought into the temple by Solomon, the covenant, the holy promise of God to you and me. And when he went up on that mountain and the holiness and the majesty of God descended on that mountain, there was fire and earthquake and lightning the, the presence of God, the power of God brought that. And God said to Moses, Moses, do not let the people come past this line because literally if they encounter my holiness without my protection, they will literally die. 
And Moses, at one point in his story, he said, God, I've seen you part the Red Sea. I saw you use the plagues to take Pharaoh to his knees. I saw you rescue your people because you wanted to bring them back to you. God, let me see your face. God said, you have no idea, Moses, what you're asking. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll carve out a little cleft in the rock, and I'll, I'll put you in it, and I'll pass by. You can see my back. Because if you see my face, Moses, you will surely die. And another time when Moses met with God and he was praying to him and he was hearing him and he was listening to him, he came back out and encountered the people and they were terrified. They were, they were because his face was glowing. Friends, that's the holiness of God. We don't need a God that's a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little bit stronger, that's a Santa Claus or granting our wishes. We need a God that's other than us. We need the true God, not one that's trying to be loving, but the God that is actually love. Not one like us that's trying to be good. We need a God that is goodness, that is purity, that is all-powerful, that is ever-present. And you say, why? Why, do, why is this so important? Why are you going on, Holly? Because of this, one of the greatest privileges of my life is the sacredness of hearing your stories. The sacredness of hearing your stories. I call them vault conversations. When you and I sit together and you share your story and we listen to God together, it's a vault. It never leaves that. But I want to say to you this morning, maybe this day causes you to reflect on your story. I want to say to you this morning, every single person in the story, in this room, has a story. Every single person in this room has a struggle, has a brokenness, has a wound, has a regret, has something that they're trying to heal from or overcome. They need to believe that they can come back from failure or back from brokenness or back from a diseased body. And we need a God that is a holy and majestic God, not one that we have shrunk down. Well, back to 1 Kings 8, the priests are bringing the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, I think we have a picture, which holds the covenant of God, the promise of God to you and me, to the Israelites, but now to you and me. They are bringing it from the tabernacle which Moses built, which was a movable um, temple because the people were moving through the desert. They're bringing it from the tabernacle into its home in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And I want you to just take in this scene as they're doing that. When all of the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel had gathered about him, about him were before the ark, sacrificing, ready, so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. As this holiness of God is entering in to be placed in the holy of holies in this new temple that Solomon has constructed as God told David to do, there is a need for, for admitting our brokenness in the presence of a holy God. See, up until this point, 
point, individuals and families had come to the temple and they couldn't approach a holy God and so they brought a perfect lamb. And they placed their hands on it and they said, God, would you take our guilt and place it on this animal? And that animal was sacrificed and the blood of the perfect lamb took the guilt for their brokenness. So as the Ark of the Covenant, the presence where God would meet his people is coming into the temple, there could not be enough sacrifice. There could not be enough blood and humility. And so this is the second thing we learn from the way the temple is designed. The temple made very clear how broken we are. See, when you walked into the temple, literally between you and the Holy of Holies, between you and where God would meet us, the Ark of the Covenant, the promise, literally physically between us was an altar of sacrifice. Where you're, you're confronted with your sin, you're, you're shown physically that your sin blocks you from getting to a holy God. You're physically shown that by the way the temple was built. Friends, I hope I don't have to spend any time convincing you. As we look back over this past year, as we look at how we've treated each other, not in this church, in the world, how we've treated each other, how we've demanded that our perspective be right, how we become enraged if someone thinks differently than we do. We are fundamentally flawed. We don't need to try a little harder, learn a little bit more. We are fundamentally flawed. And that's what the physical construction of the temple was trying to say to us. Our fundamental flaws keep us from a holy God. And friends, I think that's really tough for people like you and me to hear. I think in America, and and certainly in the area in which we live, it is very difficult for accomplished, comfortable, achieving people who like others to see us as achievers that gives us value and importance. I think it is very difficult to hear that we are fundamentally flawed. I'm going to jump ahead to a story of a man named Nicodemus. This is in the Gospel of John, the the story of Jesus told by John, one of his closest friends when he walked on the earth. And there was an older man, Nicodemus. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He had studied the law his entire life. He was older in age, so he had the respect of everyone. People stopped to listen to him. And and the scene where Nicodemus comes to Jesus is just after Jesus has gone into the second temple, the one that Solomon built, unfortunately, was destroyed in war. Another temple was built. And Jesus has gone into that temple and just, I mean, tore it up in anger. He said, you are using God's house representing the covenant of God as a place to make money, as a place to push the poor down. And he was furious. So Nicodemus comes up to him at night. And some people think that's because, you know, he was embarrassed to be with Jesus, like he's a teacher of the law, but he's going to Jesus. That might have been part of it. I think also part of it was he was an older man of the law. He was respected. Like in his eyes, he had it all together. And I think he's coming up and he's like, Jesus, listen, man, you're a great teacher, I think you're from God, but I mean, I'm running this thing and I think we can work together on this. So let's like, let's pull this together and let's, let's pull together, Jesus. 
Jesus just looks at him. He says, Nicodemus, he says, this punk Jesus kid, sorry, it's probably not good to call Jesus a punk, but he's a young man. And he's saying to this elderly, scholarly, respected leader, he says this, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. So he doesn't even like answer his question. He just changes it. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And now that born again has become like yicky, I think, in the South. That's a spiritual word, yicky. What it actually means is from above. Nicodemus knew that. And, and he's like, what are you talking about? And so Jesus tries again. He's like, Nicodemus, think. You literally have the first five books of the Bible memorized. Think back about what you know about the scriptures. Let me help you put this together. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and of spirit. Think back. Think back to your scriptures, Nicodemus. And maybe, just maybe, Nicodemus thought back about Isaiah, the prophet that we'll get to soon. Isaiah said to the people, he said, people, you are like a dried up ground that's cracking and crumbling and you need water poured on you to have life. Or maybe he thought back to Ezekiel, another prophet that was speaking to the people, people of Israel, hear this, you need a new heart. The heart, the center of your desires and decision-making and values and affections is broken. And you can't clean it up yourself. So God's going to give you a new, he's going to offer you a new heart. And he's going to offer to put his spirit in it. Friends, we are fundamentally flawed. And the temple physically showed us that. It physically spoke that over us. And so you think back to the words of Rawlings. What is it that maybe needs to be stripped away in our lives that is not essential? At this point, you might be thinking, this is the worst Mother's Day sermon I've ever heard. But hold on. We're about to make a turn. Because God said, and yet. So let's just backtrack. The holy, holy, other, loving, good, pure, all-powerful, completely present God so loves you that he wants to bring your fatally flawed, fundamentally flawed self to himself, and he went about finding a way. In Solomon's commencement address, if you will, when he's pouring out the wisdom over the people of Israel, the wisdom of God. Here's what he says that we need to remember today. 1 Kings 8, 23. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Friends, the temple taught us that God is a promise-keeping God. God is a promise-keeping God. And when we realize that, we can lay down our earning and striving and hiding and comparing and embarrassment about whatever it is that we don't want people to know about us. God is a promise-keeping God. See, God had promised King David 
that one of his sons would build a place where people could connect, even fundamentally flawed people could connect back to a holy God. This was first fulfilled by Solomon in the temple, but it was ultimately fulfilled by one of David's great, 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 one of his other sons, Jesus. Jesus from the line of David, who would be the ultimate place where we flawed people meet with a holy God. See, in order for there to be a sacrifice for sins, you had to have four things. You ready? You had to have a sinner that was making the sacrifice. You had to have a sacrifice itself, the lamb. You had to have a priest to do the offering. And then you had to have the presence of God to receive it. You had to have those four things. In Jesus, we have all four. In Jesus, we have all four. He became a sinner in our place as the sacrifice. He, he offered himself as that sacrifice. He is our priest that's, that received us, that sits on the right hand of God the Fa- Father Almighty and hears your prayers and presents them to the Father. And he is also the presence of God that received us. In Jesus, we have all four. One more thing that the temple taught us. See, there was this big curtain between us and the Holy of Holies. It was four inches thick. It was called a paracot. And that word actually means, you ready? Shut out, shut off. Because of our fundamentally flawed selves, we were shut off from a holy God. That was for our protection so that we literally would not die. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible records that that temple curtain, this was the second temple, the one that was rebuilt, was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing his body being torn in our place and and symbolizing that there was no more shut out now, that through Jesus, we can have access to a holy God in our lives. Here's an image of the second temple that was rebuilt the, the Israelites are taken into exile, spoiler alert, and, and they come back and they rebuild the temple. But I want you to know that the old men that saw this second temple wept. They said that temple is nothing like the temple of Solomon. They wept. But I want you to take your eyes down to the bottom of the image there and you see that mound? That's Calvary. That's where Jesus on basically what was a garbage dump outside of town was crucified. And as he turned his head, there was a thief crucified on either side of him. And as he turned his head to look at this thief beside him that said, you know what, I believe you are who you say you are. This guy had seconds left in his life. Jesus looks over at this thief, and in all the irony of the arc of the story of God, in the background is the temple, and he says to this man, this this absolutely fundamentally flawed human, today you will be with me in paradise. C.S. Lewis was asked, what, is the, what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion? Like, what is it? He answered with one word, grace. 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 The Son of God absorbed 
all of our collective selfishness and evil, all of our demanding to be right, all of our presenting that we're the best, he absorbed it. And, and this covenant God, this creator God, his love is so deep and so permanent for you, his commitment is so permanent for you that he would not allow our sin and death to be the end of the story. In Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have God's fundamental statement to our world, his fundamental covenant promise to you and to me, which is, hey, sinful, rebellious humanity, spinning your wheels in the mud, I love you. And I'm here to save you. I'm here to offer you a new source. Not a source that's you, but a source that's from me as a way to live your life. So I have a question and a challenge for you on this here Mother's Day, as Michael Flake would say. Um, J.K. Rawlings said that some things in her life had to be stripped away for her to get to the fundamental person that she was really created to be. Now, she wasn't speaking spiritually, but I am now. I'm wondering what in our lives might need to be stripped away. Uh, maybe what have we been putting out to the world that might need to be stripped away for us to be more the person that God created us to be. And perhaps some of us this morning, it's the idea that you are enough, that you're a good source of life for yourself, right? That you're, you're doing okay, and you're going to be a good person, and you're going to get to a holy God. Maybe for some of us that this morning, that, that concept that is not in God's word, but it is very much an American concept, maybe that needs to be stripped away. And maybe for the first time, you're like the thief on the cross that says, you know what? I really think you might be who you say you are, God. And I want you to be the source of my life. And God, Jesus, looks at you and says, oh, you will be with me in glory. Now let's go rebuild this thing. So that's my question. And here's my challenge. J.K. Rowling said that her 42-year-old self, there's some things she would want to tell her 21-year-old self. So maybe for, for those of us that have been walking with God or those that are considering Find someone that's ahead of you in their walk with God and say to them, so I might go to someone that's in their 70s and I might say to them, hey, what would you tell 54-year-old self? Because that's where I am. What would you tell me about what it looks like to walk with God? What would you tell me about the potholes you fell in so maybe I won't fall in them too? Maybe you go to Danita and Luke. Maybe you, I can send you to a, oh, we go to Betsy, we can go to these guys, the Clarks, and send over there. What would you tell 54-year-old Holly? Number one, you'll bless them because they'll get to tell you part of their story. And number two, you might just learn something. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, it's a slippery slope where we start to live life from our own wisdom. But this morning, we collectively come to you and we say as your church, as your covenant people, that we want to learn more what it looks like to live from your wisdom. God, would you show us that you are offering us a new source 
your Holy Spirit, that we might live from you, from your wisdom, from your ways, and experience the full life that you have been the promise-keeping God to give us. We ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.